Well, good morning once again. Say so thank you to Brother Rick and Brother Ryan for leading in worship this morning. I do appreciate y'all for doing that. And I'm thankful for the head of this church, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has displayed His covenant love to us in giving to this church saints qualified in character and gifts to serve. And I don't mean by that just those who hold office or those who are candidates for office in the church, but I mean all the godly saints that Christ has given to the congregation. I was thinking yesterday during our Brothers in Christ meeting that, that the Lord has certainly given good men and good women to our congregation. And when I say good, I don't mean perfect, but I mean men and women who have been called out of darkness and into light and who have been called to assemble together as a local body of Christ. And so may the Lord grant us grace to work properly together as a body and that the result of that will be that Emmanuel Baptist Church would be built up in love and usefulness in this to the glory of God. Well, as is my custom, I do like to begin sermons by way of reminder of basic Christian truths. And so I wanted to give you a quick reminder concerning the blessing of what we are engaging in at this very moment. Now, because I believe sometimes we take for granted uh, just how great of a blessing it is to be assembled together with fellow Christians to worship God and to enjoy fellowship with one another. You know, when we think of heaven, we generally think that, that heaven will be great because why? Because Christ will be there, right? That's why we think heaven will be great. And that is right. That is why heaven will be great. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23 says the following. It says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so it is the covenantal and manifest presence of God that makes heaven glorious. That's why we want to go to heaven, right? And so we would do well to remember that, that in a veiled way, we experience that now. Ephesians tells us that we are seated in heavenly places presently, that we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood, and that God dwells in the midst of His people now. And so corporate worship is a foretaste of heaven, because it is a foretaste of dwelling in the presence of God. And so I urge you to think on that great reality today as we worship. But we, all, but we must also remember that we don't dwell in the presence of God by ourselves. That's not our re reality now, nor will it be, the, be, be our reality in heaven. Heaven will be filled with God's people who have been redeemed and glorified. And so, in part, so if part of what makes heaven heaven is that God's people will be dwelling together, then that means that the corporate gathering of the church is also a foretaste of heaven. Okay? So if heaven means that we're going to be dwelling with God forever, and it also means that we'll be dwelling with God's people forever, then our corporate worship on, on the Lord's Day is a foretaste of heaven. Heaven will be filled with God's people who have been redeemed and glorified. And, and right now at this very moment, look around, look, at, look around you. Who do you see? You see saints who have been redeemed and who, are, who will be glorified, who are passing from one degree of glory to another. And so the people that are around you now, these are the people that you will spend eternity with. And so in a very, very real way, this is a foretaste of heaven. Every single time we meet together on the Lord's Day, it is a foretaste of heaven. 
These are the people that you're walking with together to the celestial city. So I hope you understand the weight of that, the significance of that. We ought to be the most eager people in the world when our alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning. That we get to go meet with the very people that we're going to go to heaven with. That's what we do on the Lord's Day. And more than that, we meet with God who we will spend eternity with. And so I urge you to cherish days like today. Cherish the Lord's Day and cherish one another as we move closer and closer to that great day where we will together see Christ face to face. Now this leads me to the subject I want to address with you today. We've been talking about the very goal of God's redemptive purposes. And what is that goal? Well, the goal is quite clear. The goal of God's redemptive purpose is to redeem what was lost as a result of sin and to make it even better. Well, what was lost because of sin? Well, many things, but at the heart of what was lost was a relationship with God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and therefore out of the presence of God. And so the end goal of God's redemptive purposes is that God would dwell with His people forever in a perfect communion that could never be disrupted by sin again. And so, so what we're talking about here is the, very, is the very message and goal of the gospel. The gospel is the message of reconciliation because in our sinful state, prior to conversion, we are enemies of God and therefore estranged from Him. And we have no fellowship with Him. Can light have fellowship with darkness? We know the answer to that, right? Of course not. And so we're talking about the very, the very warp and woof of what it means to be a Christian. And that is one who has fellowship with God. Now I will address this idea of fellowship with God more later in this sermon. And Lord willing, I hope to dive into that in a broader way in next week's sermon. But for today, I want to talk about a very critical and blessed aspect of this fellowship with God. That is the privilege of the believer. And that aspect is the aspect of prayer. So I want to address the subject of prayer with you this morning. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we come before you this morning in the name and the merit of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very one who you tell us you are well pleased with. Father, we know that we are not worthy or capable to to come before your holy presence this morning in our own merit. For we are sinners and we have fallen short of your glory. But Lord, we come before you this morning with joy and with boldness because we come in the name of your Son in whom you are well pleased. We don't come praying in Jesus' name as if, as if we're using his name as some sort of secret code to gain a hearing with you. We come in Jesus' name because Father, we are united to your Son by faith. And that because you are well pleased with your Son, you are well pleased with us. And you call us your sons and your daughters. We come freely this morning as children to a Father. And not just any Father, but the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Father, we ask that you would do good unto us this morning. We ask that you would empower the preaching and hearing of your word and that your people would be encouraged and exhorted to pursue all the more fellowship with you in prayer. 
We pray that this church would be a praying church because we have been fully convinced of your love for us and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are good, you are powerful, and you have allowed and invited us to draw near to your majestic throne of grace with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience as a result of the sin-conquering blood of Christ. So, Father, meet with us now. Bless your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. And so as we address the subject of prayer this morning, we must begin by asking the question, what is prayer? Now that sounds like a very simple question, and I suppose in many ways it is a simple question. But I can imagine having children can remind us uh, of the depth of what we might oftentimes overlook or take for granted. I remember one time teaching a small children's Bible study class, and I had a small child ask me the question, what is death? Well, it's not an overly complicated subject, but when you seek to explain that to a child, all of a sudden you begin to see the depth of that subject. It's not an easy subject to describe. We take it for granted, right? We read the word death when we're reading, we just move on by because we know what the word means. But when you begin to try to explain that, we see the depth of that word, right? Well, I believe prayer is like that as well. Um, One early church father made the following statement. He said, Scripture is like a river. Broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. And so he made this statement concerning Scripture. When we read Scripture, there are parts of Scripture that are easy enough for a child to understand. There's also parts of Scripture that the, the wisest theologian will never plumb the depths of. Okay? Well, I think the same can be said and applied to the subject of prayer. It is a simple subject, but yet when you begin to, to think of the depth and the majesty of what prayer is, it becomes a subject that elephants can swim in. And so what is prayer? Well, quite simply, prayer is talking with or communing with God. And it has different forms, such as praise or thanksgiving, confession, petitions, intercession, etc. And so prayer is communicating with God. Now, think about that statement. It's one of those statements that if we're not careful... It will just go right past us if we don't think about it. Prayer is communicating with God. David in Psalm 8 says the following, You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever read that statement before in the Psalms? To think that the God who has created the entire universe. And, and, the, and the earth is a, is a speck in that universe. And we are specks upon that speck. And yet God cares for us and knows us. And so David is talking about the gulf or the chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. What theologians often call the creator-creature distinction. And this alone is enough to blow our minds that we small creatures can actually have real and meaningful communication with the Creator, God. But the gulf is even larger than that. Not only only are we creatures, and God is the Creator, but we are sinful creatures. And He is a thrice holy God. And yet, through the mediation of Christ, we can actually have communion with this holy God. 
Brothers and sisters, this is amazing in every sense of the word amazing. You and I can talk with God. Really. We really can talk with God. And so I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would press upon your hearts the weight and the glory of that reality. That we can talk with God. And so this communing with God is one of the great realities of the Christian religion. Christianity teaches that we have more than simply a religion, but we have an actual covenant relationship with God. We see this all over Scripture, but I'll just add a couple of places to illustrate this truth. The first place is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, which is where I hope to be, with, uh, to be at with you next week, Lord willing. But there it says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, one of those, those statements that we can just read right by without thinking about the, the weight of that, the depth of that. Our fellowship is with God the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. A similar verse to this, which is probably where the Apostle John learned what he wrote in 1 John, is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus states, And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so what is this verse saying? Well, we could spend an entire sermon on that verse, but for our purposes today, I want you to see two critical truths from that verse. First, those who have eternal life are those that know the only true God. And of course, the word know here is more than simply just having a head knowledge or simply knowing about the one true God because we know that Satan knows the one true God in that fact in that sense he knows about the one true God he knows that he exists he believes he exists so that's not what the word know there means in fact the scripture tells us that all men everywhere know God that is true by, by virtue of general revelation all men everywhere know God and so the word know here is not just the, the word of having uh, knowledge about who God is but the word know here is a relational word. It means that those who have a personal and loving relationship with God are the ones who have eternal life. Second, this verse teaches us that the very nature of this eternal life is to have this relationship with the one true God. Okay, so I want you to follow where I'm, where I'm going with that. So it is not, well, if you... If you know the one true God, then you can experience eternal life. As if eternal life is, is something separate. You see where, I'm, see where I'm going with that? It's not, well, if you know God, then you can have eternal life. It's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this, that what comprises spiritual or eternal life is union and communion with the one true God. That's what eternal life is. It's having fellowship with God. A second scripture that, that illustrates this truth. Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23. Here Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, so what are we learning in this passage here from Matthew 7? 
Well, it teaches us that what makes a person a disciple of Christ is not that they address Jesus as Lord or even that they do many, many mighty works in His name, but rather that they are known by Jesus. Of course, what is meant by the word new in this passage is not simply head knowledge or knowledge of facts. Jesus knew who these people were and He knew what their works were. The word new is referring to the fact that these people never had a true personal covenant relationship with Christ. That's what it means there. They never knew Christ. Christ never knew them. They never had a personal covenant relationship. And so why are the truths taught in, the, in these passages so important? Well, because we clearly see that a Christian is described in Scripture as what? As a person who knows. That is, has a personal relationship with God. Whereas a lost person is described as one who does not know. That is, who does not have a personal relationship with God. Okay? You following me so far? So what, what makes a person a Christian? They have a personal relationship with God. What makes a person a non-Christian? They do not have a personal relationship with God. And this leads me to the, to the next point, which is the obvious importance of prayer. We have seen that prayer is communion with God, right? That is clear. Prayer is fellowship, communion with God. We've also seen that this communion or personal relationship with God is at the very heart of true Christian discipleship. In other words, we can say that what makes a person a Christian is that they have a true relationship with God. Therefore, it follows that prayer is extremely important. Jonathan Edwards once said, Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And I think piggybacking off what Edwards said, we can make the statement that prayer is as natural an expression of spiritual life as breathing is of natural life. And so I think you're picking up what I'm putting down, I hope. A Christian is one who communes with God in prayer. See that? Therefore, it follows that one who does not commune with God in prayer is not a Christian. And so you see the importance of prayer. If you don't pray, you're not a Christian, therefore you're going to hell. You see that? So prayer is of absolute importance for us in the Christian life. So, it is clear that prayer is of great importance, and that is a subject I want to preach on today. But before we can talk further about prayer, we must lay some foundational truths down that undergird prayer. And that is the way it is with most theological topics. You can't, you can't just sometimes just dive right into a topic. There's so many, all the truths in Scripture are interconnected. Does it make sense? All of theology is inter interconnected. And so sometimes to understand one aspect of theology, you've got to understand a whole lot of other things before you can even understand that aspect. And that is true regarding prayer as well. And so there's many truths that we must have a firm grasp on if we're going to rightly understand prayer. Now think of that little prayer that many of us have taught children, or perhaps we learned this as a child ourselves. And that prayer, of course, is, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food, by His hands we are fed, we thank You for our daily bread, Amen. Now, we might, if we're not careful, dismiss that as a child's prayer. But in reality, the theological and practical significance of that prayer is truly astounding. Think about it. Those two truths, 
God is good and God is great are absolutely foundational truths to the Christian religion. A good God who always does that which is right and is compassionate, merciful, gracious, this truth is at the very heart of the gospel message, is it not? Further, a God who is great, that is, He is all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, and sovereign over all. These two truths are absolutely essential to Christianity. Earlier we looked at John 17.3 and I made the point that knowing God in that verse meant more than just simply having a head knowledge about who God is, but that it meant actually having a personal and loving relationship with God. But we must understand that knowing God in the sense of loving and trusting God is built upon the truth which God has revealed about Himself in His Holy Word. In other words, to know God relationally, we must first know God doctrinally. Make sense? You can, you can know all about right theology and still not have a personal relationship with God. But you cannot have a personal relationship with God unless you have right theology first. You see that? So we must have right theology, right teaching, right doctrine about who God is as He has revealed Himself in His Word if we are to have this personal covenant relationship with Him. And so the first doctrinal truth about God that I want to touch on is the doctrine of God's greatness. Particularly referring to God's sovereignty. This is a foundational truth to understanding who God is. When we say God is sovereign, what we are saying is that He has a sovereign will and He has sovereign power. The scripture declares that all things come to pass according to the will of God. This means that God has sovereignly decreed all that should come to pass. Now some look at this, this truth, this doctrine, and say, well, that, that's a prayer killer. If God has already decreed all that shall come to pass, then what is the purpose of prayer? Because our prayers can't change the sovereign will of God. Well, it is true that our prayers don't change God's decreed will. But we must understand that the God who has appointed the ends of all things has also appointed the means to those ends. And prayer is one of the means by which God accomplishes His sovereign will. So actually, the sovereign will of God rightly understood is a great catalyst to prayer, not a hindrance to prayer. So God has a sovereign will. But God's power to execute His will is what we call in theology His omnipotence. In other words, He is all-powerful. This omnipotence of God is His sovereign power. And this is a great catalyst to prayer for obvious reasons. We don't come to a God who is weak, but we come to a God who has truly infinite power. Nothing can thwart the will of God. And so if God wills to do something, He will bring it about, and there is no one who can stop His hand. And so the Scriptures encourage us with this truth in places like Ephesians 3 where it says that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So we serve a God who is sovereign, who is all-powerful. He has a sovereign will and He has sovereign power to carry out that will. And so if we pray according to the will of God, nothing can stop that prayer. You see that? Now, I can spend a lot more time on this doctrinal truth about God, but I hope these brief comments at least show you how this truth is foundational if we would understand prayer. 
When we come before God in prayer, we come before a sovereign, all-powerful God who is able to answer our prayers. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, he actually wrote several hymns, and one of those hymns is entitled, Come My Soul, Your Plea, Prepare, which we actually sang earlier in the worship. And one of the stanzas of that hymn goes as follows, You are coming to a king, large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. It's beautiful words. But the question is, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that God can answer our prayers? If you do, then go often to the great King of heaven and earth and large petitions with you bring. Do you have big desires for your own sanctification? For the well-being of your family? For the health and advancement of the church? And for the spread of the gospel to every nation? Then bring those large petitions before the King with faith that He can truly answer those prayers. We serve a sovereign God who is able to answer our prayers. Now we move to a second great truth concerning God that I think is perhaps the most important truth for us to believe with regards to prayer. That is the truth that God is good. This is a truth that I really believe that as Christians we must put that truth before our eyes daily. We cannot afford to go a day without putting that truth before our eyes. God is good. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We've been in Ephesians over the past several weeks, and I want to read together with you verses 1 through 7. And show you something about this doctrine of the goodness of God. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So according to these verses, why did God save you? Well, verses 1 through 3 clearly show that there was no reason in you to motivate God to save you. In fact, those verses reveal that we were children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath, right? So there's no, no reason in you that would motivate God to save you. And so why did God save you if you are saved? Was it because God had a need? No. God doesn't need us. He is the only being that is truly independent. He needs nothing. Would a God save you that, so that you would serve Him? Well, it is true that those whom God saves, they, they do serve Him. 
But is that the reason that he saves? Again, was God in need of servants? Of course not. And even if God did need servants, could he have not found someone better than you or I to serve him? Of course he could. Did God save you so that you would love him? Again, is God in need of your love? No. He's not in need of your love. He was perfectly satisfied before he created anything. So why did God save you if you are a Christian here this morning? Well, I think that verse 7 in this chapter reveals the answer to this. It says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The reason that God saves a person is to make a demonstration out of that person by lavishing upon that person the full extent of His riches and grace. You see, salvation has always been about God and His glory. It has never been about you meeting the conditions of the law so that God will love you, but it is about God showing unconditional love. Jesus Himself says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you are good to those who are good to you, what glory is there in that? And so God makes a demonstration of how good He is and that He loves those who and lo- loves those and does good unto those who meet none of His conditions. See that? God shows His glory in that He does good unto sinners, those who do not meet His conditions. And so we see it's not about the one who receives the gift, but it's about the one who gives the gift, right? That's what salvation is all about. It's to point to the giver, not, to, not the receiver. All the glory goes to the giver of salvation. And so God showing the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us is a very critical truth with regard to our approach to prayer. To further explain this, if you would, turn with me to the Old Testament. And let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 40 and 41. Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41. Now that is a good sound to hear the Bible pages turning. Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41. Here he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and so, so let's look at what God says here. He has entered into an everlasting covenant in which He promises to do His people good. Now let me just pause there. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. God has promised to do His people good. And I can tell you without a shadow of doubt that God withholds no good thing from His people. He always does that which is good to His people. If you are a Christian here this morning, this should cause great joy to well up in your souls. That God always does good to you. He works all things together for your good. Every single thing that befalls you is for your good and it comes from your loving Father's hand. Now, sometimes we approach a passage like like this one in Jeremiah 32 
that says that God promises to do us good. And He is a God that is faithful to His promises and He cannot lie. But we take it to mean that God's attitude towards us is like this. Well, I've made this promise to do my people good and I don't break my promises even though they are dirty, rotten sinners. I'm going to do them good because I have to because I entered into this covenant. Sometimes we think of God's covenant faithfulness in that way. That is not the way God reveals Himself in this passage. Look back with me at verse number 41. What does it say? I will rejoice in doing them good. So brothers and sisters, that right there ought to be a game changer in your prayer life. It really ought to be. God rejoices to do you good. God doesn't just do us good because He made a promise to. He does us good because He wants to. He delights in it. He rejoices to do us good. And this is absolutely foundational to our prayer life. We, we so often lack joy in our Christian walk and go through seasons of prayerlessness precisely because we don't really believe that God rejoices to do us good. Yes, we can repeat the words that God is good, but we often have trouble believing those words. But we must remember on the cross, Jesus said three words that we need to firmly fix in our minds. What three words did He say? He said, it is finished. What is finished? Sin is finished. Enmity with God is finished. The work of reconciliation is finished. When we begin to doubt the goodness of God and His desire to do us good, we are doubting in the very power of the cross. That's what we're doing. When we go through seasons of prayerlessness and we begin to doubt God's willingness to do us good, we are doubting in the very power of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, as a Christian, your sin debt was paid for by Christ on the cross. And not only that, His perfect righteousness is credited to your account. And so if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been declared perfectly righteous by God Himself. And you will always, always, always stand before God on those terms. You see, it's not about you. It's about the perfect work of Christ. That's what the doctrine of justification is all about. If you are in Christ, you are declared righteous by God, and He is well pleased with you forever. And nothing can change that. This means that we can come boldly into the presence of God in prayer and not be considered proud or arrogant for doing so. How? Because we come into God's presence not in our own merit, but in the merit of another. We come in the merit of Jesus Christ, whom the Father is well pleased with. Therefore, if we're in Christ, He is well pleased with us. And we can come to Him in prayer with that full assurance, knowing that God loves us and is well pleased with us and desires to answer our prayer. This should excite us if we're Christians here this morning. He rejoices to do us good. And it's not that He rejoices to do good only to people like the Apostle Paul or Charles Spurgeon or R.C. Sproul. But He rejoices to do good unto all of His people that are savingly united to Christ. Even you and even me. Think about it, brothers and sisters. What will eternity look like for the Christian? And by the way, that's something you ought to think about on a regular basis. What will your eternity look like as a Christian? Will it not be our good God lavishing upon and heaping on us the full riches of His grace in Christ Jesus? 
That's exactly what it'll look like, right? Eternity will be God lavishing upon you the full extent of His grace and riches in Christ Jesus. That's what heaven will be. But let me ask you this question. Does eternal life begin when you die? Or does it begin the very moment you are born again? It begins the very moment you're born again. This demonstration of the grace and goodness of God is not just reserved for those who are in heaven, but it is for all of God's people and it starts this side of heaven. You older saints in the room, is this not true? Every one of the older saints in this room can testify to the fact that God has been good to them. Now I'm not saying that we experience heaven in this life. No, we live in a fallen world and we struggle and fight against our remaining sin. But can, can you not testify to the fact that God has been good to you? God is good to His people. I, I know of no Christian that would trade places with a non-Christian, regardless of the circumstances. There's never been a Christian who would trade places for a moment with a non-Christian, ever. And if you found one who would do so, you found one who's, who's not a Christian, they're a false believer. One who is truly a Christian would never trade places with a non-Christian. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, come to Him. He is good. And He will do good unto you. Don't be foolish. Don't be stubborn. Submit and come to Him and know that no one who has ever come to Christ in faith has ever been turned away. No one who has ever placed the very destiny of their soul upon Christ has been disappointed in the end. It's never happened, and it never will. Our God is a good God, and He offers salvation to all who would come to Him by faith. Now, there is a third foundational truth that I want to touch on quickly for time's sake. We have seen that God is sovereign, and how this is a great encouragement for us to pray because God is able to answer our prayers. We've also seen that God is good, and more than that, He is willing to do us good. And the third truth that's very foundational for our prayer life is that God is accessible. You see, we need all three of those truths. It's like a three-legged stool. If God was not sovereign, then there would be very little point in going to Him in prayer, right? Because He couldn't answer your prayers. He would be weak and unable. So sovereignty is essential. But if God was sovereign but He was evil, or simply just did not care for you, then that would be no good either, would it? You can go to the sovereign God, but if He didn't love you or care for you, what good is that for you? None. But even if you have a God who is both able and willing to help you, that does us no good if we have no access to Him. A sovereign and loving God is no good to us unless we can actually talk to Him. So we need a sovereign, good, and accessible God. And thanks be unto God, He is accessible because... There is a mediator between God and man who is none other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and Hebrews 10 say that it is through Christ that we have obtained access. And not just any access, the access of the Son. That, that's the type of access that we have to God. We have the access of being His own children, coming to Him as a Father. We have access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're going to understand prayer, we must understand the following truths. First, God is able to do you good. 
He is sovereign. Secondly, God is willing to do you good. To do you good. He has promised to do you good and He rejoices to do you good. And thirdly, God is accessible. We have access to the throne of grace through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now that we've laid some groundwork concerning some foundational truths undergirding prayer, let us begin the sermon by turning to our text this morning, which is Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. This is God's Word. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he, delay, will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Amen. Now, this passage is called, oftentimes, the parable of the persistent widow. Now, I personally don't think that that is the, is the appropriate title for this parable. Um, I, I believe that title... Is not the most accurate to the message of the parable. And I'll explain that further in a few moments. But before we get there, we need to remember that when we approach the interpretation of parables in the Bible, we have to be careful. Parables are famous for being misinterpreted because people try to read them like they're written in some sort of code language. And they try to assign some secret meaning to every word or phrase in the passage. And so a good rule of thumb for you when you're approaching parables in the Bible is to understand that generally parables are trying to teach one main point or one primary truth. That, that's, the general, that's generally the way parables are taught. Okay? Notice verse 1. And thankfully in this parable, uh, we don't have to do any difficult exegesis at all to find out what the main point is. It's very, very, very simple. Look at verse 1. What is the reason that Jesus told this parable? That his disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. So what's the purpose of this parable? What's this parable about? Prayer. That the disciples would always pray and not lose heart in prayer. That's what the parable is about. Exegesis is done. Okay? Now, why would Jesus need to tell a parable to the effect that his disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart? Well, why should he... Why does he need to do that? Well, I think you need to look no further than in the mirror to understand why this parable is necessary. What disciple of Christ has not had seasons where they struggled with a lack of prayer and with a lack of heart to pray? Every disciple has experienced that. Every disciple understands what that means. Every disciple needs this parable to encourage them to, not, to, to continue in prayer and not lose heart. 
And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, why do we lose heart in our prayer lives? And secondly, we need to ask ourselves, what does losing heart in our prayer lives reveal about our belief in the very truths about God that we have mentioned so far this morning? You see, to lose heart in prayer is to doubt God. It's sin. To lose heart in prayer is sin. It is to doubt God. It is to not really believe that, 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 is who he, that God is who He reveals Himself to be, nor to believe in the promises that He has made. That's what it is to lose heart in prayer. It's to not really believe that God is good and sovereign and accessible. It's to not really believe that. You can recite the truths, but not really believe the truths. That's what happens when you lose heart in prayer. You begin to doubt those truths. See, as Christians, we should never lose heart. Why? I'll repeat it again. Because our God is what? He is great. He is sovereign. He is good. He loves to do you good. He rejoices to do you good. And He is accessible through Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no excuse to lose heart in prayer. But you see, the reason prayer is a struggle is because at times we have a faith problem which is a result of a theology problem. We struggle with our prayers and we lose heart because we doubt God, and this is a result of not really believing the gospel message. If we really understand who we are in Christ, that is going to have huge implications in our prayer life. Think of Romans 8.32 for a moment. Many of you are probably familiar with that verse. what, What does that verse say? It says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Think about that for a moment. If God sent His Son to die for us while we were still sinners, if He has given us the greatest gift imaginable, and for no other reason than because He is a loving God, will He not also give us everything that results in good for our souls? Of course He will. He's already given you the greatest gift. Of course He'll give you the smaller gift. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? It's going to affect your prayer life. And so, it is precisely this, brothers and sisters, that is the underlying cause of our struggles in our prayer life. All of our losing heart and prayer can be traced back to struggling to believe the very truths that we have discussed this morning particularly how those truths about God are revealed to us in the Gospel. In the Gospel, we see the sovereign will and power of God displayed. We see it displayed in election. We see it displayed in regeneration, and justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation is a miracle that, that only the sovereign power of God can accomplish. So in the Gospel, we see the sovereignty of God displayed, the greatness of God displayed. Further in the gospel, we see the goodness of God richly displayed. We see God's compassion, mercy, grace, kindness, all on display as He does good unto His elect people. By sending His Son to live and die in their place, and then apply the finished work of Christ and all its benefits to those same people. We see the goodness of God displayed in the gospel. And in the gospel, we see reconciliation and access to draw near to Him and covenant relationship established on the basis of the mediatorial work of Christ on our behalf. So the gospel is all about those three great truths. The sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and the accessibility of God. 
We see that displayed for us richly in the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the antidote to losing heart in prayer. It's not very complicated. The antidote is this. Believe the gospel. That is the antidote to losing heart in prayer. Go back to the gospel over and over and over again. Every day, preach the gospel to yourself. If you're struggling in prayer, preach the gospel to yourself. This was Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. When he prayed that the Ephesian saints may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the answer to losing heart in prayer is not you resolving to pray harder or with more persistence. See, a lot of people read Luke 18, 1-8 and say, well, what that, that prayer is teaching is you need, to, you need to be more consistent and persistent in your prayer. Right? That's, that's, that's as far as they take that, that parable. Now, is it true that we ought to do that? Absolutely. We ought to be more consistent and persistent in our prayer. But that's not what that parable is teaching. That's not the main point the parable is teaching. The answer to losing heart in prayer is to be filled with all the fullness of God as you comprehend the love of Christ displayed to you in the gospel. That's the secret to not losing heart in prayer. To behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. You see that? And, that, and that's it right there, beloved. That, that's, it's, not, it's not that complicated. You see, it's not about you looking to yourself to overcome your struggles in prayer. It's about you looking to Christ and seeing the glory of Christ displayed in the gospel. And realizing that if you are in Christ, you are the object of God's redeeming love. And if that truth grips your heart, if it really grips your heart, the gospel grips your heart, nothing can keep you from prayer. Nothing can keep you from fellowshipping with God. You see that? So the gospel is, is the antidote to prayerlessness. The gospel must grip your heart. And if it has, you will be one who prays. And prays often. So let's look back at our passage to see how Jesus seeks to encourage his disciples to pray and not lose heart. So let's notice together verses 2 through 7 of Luke 18. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For while he refused, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So what do, what do we have in this passage? Well, we have God, the sovereign, good, and accessible God, being juxtaposed or compared against a wicked judge. You have this wicked judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't respect others, and yet even this wicked judge answers the request of this lowly widow because of her persistence. This judge answers the request because he was tired of dealing with this woman. But remember who our God is. Our God is the one who has promised to do his people good and who rejoices in doing so. So we see this in this parable, do we not? It says, will not God give justice to his elect, that is his covenant people, and will he not do it speedily? In other words, 
Will not God do good unto His people? And will He not rejoice to do so as evidence by His speedy response? So the parable isn't teaching us that if we bother God long enough that He will give us what we want. It's not what it's teaching us. This parable is teaching us to pray and not lose heart because the one to whom we pray is a loving God who absolutely delights to do you good. And so the question before you this morning is very simple. Do you believe that God is good and that He delights to do His people good? And is that evidenced by your prayer life? I've used the analogy before of, you know, if I told you this, this building was on fire, I, I know that you don't believe me, right? Why? Because you're not getting up and moving, right? That's what, I know you don't believe me, okay? So you can say, I believe that God is good and He rejoices to do His people good. You can say that, but the evidence that you really believe that is that you pray. The evidence that you believe this room is on fire is that you get up out of the room, right? Quickly, Right? The evidence that you believe God is good and He loves to do you good is you continue in prayer with Him. Now, let us look at perhaps one of the saddest verses in all of Holy Scripture. The end of verse 8. It says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, find, will, will He find faith on earth? <coughs> And so despite the clear and overwhelming good news that God is good and that He rejoices to do good unto all those that trust in His Son, will Christ find people on earth that really believe the Gospel? Now I don't believe this verse is meant to be speculative. A speculative verse about the number of people who, have, who will have faith when Christ returns. A lot of people take it there. You know, they'll say when Christ returns there will be very few believers when Christ returns. I don't think that's what the point of that passage is at all. That's not the purpose of the verse. This verse is meant to be a self-examining verse. Examine yourself. Are you one who believes the gospel and is this evidenced by the way that you commune with God in prayer? That's, that's the point of the verse. Is to examine yourself. Do you believe that God is good? And is that being evidenced by your prayer life? If not, repent. Believe that God is good and pray. That's the point of the passage. Now, let's bring this to a close with a couple of points of application. To the individual Christians in this room, are there particular sins in your life that you're struggling with? I'm sure every one of us will say yes. Do you believe that God desires for you to have greater victory over those sins? Do you really believe that? Then pray that God would grant you victory and don't stop until you have that victory. That's the point of the passage. Do you have loved ones that are not saved? I'm sure all of us would say yes. Do you believe that it would bring God glory for your loved ones to bow the knee to Christ in repentance and faith and so become disciples of King Jesus? Do you believe that would glorify Christ? Glorify God? If so then pray that God would save your loved ones and don't stop until they are worshiping God with you. That's what this passage is teaching. Believing that God will do that. So you see where I'm going with that, right? I could just go on and on and on with the examples. But here's the point. God is good. And He rejoices to do you good. Believer, believe God and pray. Secondly, 
to us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Who is the head of the church? Is it not Jesus Christ? Does Jesus love His bride? Absolutely He does. Is Jesus not the one who is building His church and the one who bestows gifts upon His church? Of course He is. Do you desire to see God add to this church? Do you desire as a church to be the pillar and buttress of the truth and thus see the pure gospel of Christ influence this community? Of course. I hope so. Do you desire to see your members growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you desire as a church to be built up in your love for one another and for your Savior and thus be a church that is well-pleasing in the sight of Christ? Do you desire these things? you believe that Christ desires these things? Well, Emmanuel, these are good desires. Remember who your God is. Be, be faithful to pray, for, pray to God to grant these desires and don't lose heart in the matter. Brothers and sisters, we have a good God and we have a great God. He can answer those prayers. And He desires to answer those prayers. May it not be said of us as a church that we don't pray. That we don't pray for these things. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. So may we be a praying church. Thirdly, a word to those this morning who may not know Christ. The things I have said this morning are of no benefit to you if you remain outside of Christ. You see, there is no promise from God that He will do you good. That promise is for His people alone. This means there is no promise from God that He will answer your prayers. That's the truth that the culture at large doesn't understand. God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. John 9.31 says, We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. So God doesn't answer the prayers of sinners. But there is hope for you if you are outside of Christ. When I say sinners, I mean those who are outside of Christ. Because we realize we are all sinners. But if you are outside of Christ, remember uh, Romans 10. It says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you don't know Christ, I urge you to call upon Him today. That's your only hope. But, that is a, a prayer. God desires to save the lost, right? He came into this world to seek and, and to save the lost. He came into this world to die for sinners, right? To save sinners. Okay, if you're outside of Christ, if you come to Him and ask Him to save you, plead for Him to save you, desire that He will save you, understand that He is your only hope, He will save you. That's what the Scripture says. <coughs> As we close, I cannot emphasize this enough, but I'll say it once more. We serve a good God. Let us always be constant in prayer, believing that He will do great things on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, I do, I do pray that you would grow in your prayer life. Take it serious, brothers and sisters. But also understand the joy that awaits you. Remember, we began by saying prayer is what? Talking with God. Communing with God. 
If you're a Christian, that is your heart's greatest desire, right? To dwell with God, to love God, to be in fellowship with God. If that be so, and prayer is that, then we ought to be praying all the time. We ought to be a people of prayer. So my prayer is that you would be a people of prayer and that our church would grow as a being, being a church of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, you are truly a great and good God. And Father, we are truly thankful that we have access to your very throne at this time because of what you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I do pray that you would impress upon us the very, the very high privilege, the very glory of being able to go to you in prayer. Lord, help us to, to understand the weight of this. We understand that our finite minds cannot grasp it fully, but we, we know that Paul prayed that, that saints would be able to comprehend that which was incomprehensible. So I pray that you would do the same for us. Help us to understand just how, how blessed we are to have fellowship with you. And Father, I do pray that you would cause your people to never doubt your love. You have displayed it in, in the giving of your Son. And so for us to doubt your love is sin. Father, make your presence and your love known to your people today. And may you draw out from them great worship to your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Right, at this time, if you would, please stand, and we'll sing together hymn number 416, I Need Thee Every Hour.